Hey everyone, I'm Jacob Cohen Donnelly and this is a Media Operator. This show is a discussion about building media companies for current and prospective media operators. We discuss business models, products, audience development, subscriptions, advertising, commerce, everything to help you with your media business. To learn more and to become a premium member of the newsletter, visit amediaoperator.com. My guest this week is Jason Yanowitz, co-founder of Blockworks, a media and events company dedicated to the crypto asset space. During this 35-minute conversation, we discuss the early days of the business, the structure of their podcast network, and what they're thinking about events in 2021. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Let's start at the genesis of it all. How did you find your way to launching a media company about crypto, and what prompted you to jump in? Yeah, well, first things first, thanks for having me on the show, Jacob. Um, unlike most of the media operators uh, that you've had on the past, we, I would i would call it, for lack of a better word, we did this whole media thing ass backwards. Uh, it was actually end of uh, 2017, let's call it September, October. I ended up going, I was working in venture at the time and then at this data analytics company. I went to this Sunday event. And I had been into the Bitcoin space. Uh, I lived in Budapest and kind of the Hungarian students out there love Bitcoin. I came to New York. I ended up going to the Sunday event and I get there early, uh, you know, to hear about blockchain. I get there about 45 minutes early. I listen to this guy. I think his name was Sam. Speak about launching a consulting business. I get really fired up about a consulting side hustle. I listen to, you know, two hours of I think it was this woman, Amanda Gutterman, talk up from who was the uh, CMO of Consensus, talk about Ethereum changing the world. I come home. I was living with uh, a few buddies at the time. I tell them that I'm launching a uh, an advisory firm to help Fortune 500s get into uh, the blockchain space, and that was the start of what originally was called Blockworks Advisors. And we can get into more about how that whole thing transformed, but that was kind of the genesis day, I guess you'd call it. And so Blockworks started as an advisory business. You kind of expanded into events. Then you added a podcast network. And then just recently, you launched a news organization. Can you walk through the progression of the company and how it's evolved over time? Of course, yeah. I mean, going back to that one day, I come home, I, I tell my buddies that I'm going to launch this advisory firm. I had one friend who was working in consulting, who's now our co-founder, Michael Ippolito. And he said, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> Why in the world would you launch a, uh, a services-based consulting firm? Nobody's going to trust you. Uh, we're both young kids in New York. Uh, we, so I said, well, how do we get consulting clients? He said, well, we have to build a brand. I said, how do you build a brand? He said, events. So we start going to events in New York, learning about kind of this Bitcoin blockchain space. I think Blockworks called the top pretty precisely in the crypto space. This was like December, October, or November of 2017. Uh, we go to a few events and kind of this light bulb moment went off when we said, there are this, this is a horrible event, but there are a hundred people in the crowd. They all paid 50 bucks. That's $5,000. Why don't we host our own event and just make it better? Right, so the uh, like the budding young entrepreneurs that we were, we uh, spun together an event. I remember December tenth, we incorporated the business. We went to Staples. We found a twenty dollar whiteboard. We asked them for a uh, a whiteboard that was kind of chipped off in the back, so that we could negotiate the price down to fifteen bucks. And we launched an event. And we'd wake up at four a.m. every single morning before our full uh, before our full time jobs, and just message people on LinkedIn. Hundreds of people every morning. 
And uh, before we knew it, it was February 27th of 2018. Uh, we And we had our first event. And it was a 6 p.m. event. 225 people showed up. Everyone paid like 20, 30 bucks a pop. And that was the making of the events business. Um, and then you were just asking about the progression. I guess you fast forward. Uh, you know, we end up going full time with it after that event. So May of 2018. And then in June of 2018, uh, we had an event on capital markets. And I remember this guy, Anthony Pompliano, we really wanted him to come to the event. And uh, we, uh, you know, again, we didn't really know what we were doing. We cold emailed him nine times, right? No responses, nine times. Tenth time, again, no response. Eleventh time, he responds, guys, if you stop emailing me about your damn event, I'll come speak at your event. And Palm came and spoke with, at our event. And that was kind of the, uh, you know, the, the start of what became our first podcast, which was Off the Chain with Anthony Pompliano. And so you get Pomp to come to the event. He speaks. You now have the podcast. Walk through then how you guys went from events podcast or representing a single podcast to having a network of what appears to be something like 20 plus podcasts, at least when I was looking at your podcast page, to deciding that you really wanted to launch a news organization? Yeah, good question. So today, you know, we're recording this uh, February 1st, 2021. We have one of the largest financial podcast networks in the world. Uh, But yeah, back then, we just had one show. And really, when Pomp came to us, we realized one thing, which is the skill set required to build an audience is often not the same skill set uh, that you that in you know a creator needs to turn that into a business, right? So what we've done and invested in as a core competency of Blockworks is to really help people that have that talent to create good content and build distribution, just shore things up, right, on the production side of things, on the operation side of things, and really what we started with was just you know selling sales sponsorships. Um, but yeah, over the last two years, we've basically invested invested more in each core competency, right? So it started as selling ads on the shows for different folks. So we'd go out to different podcasts. We'd say, hey, look, big fan of the show, 10,000 downloads an episode. I've never heard an advertiser come into our network. We'll sell the ads. We'll do a rev share. Then it became, we hired a production team. We'll take on the production for you. And now a few years later, we're able to go to folks and say, look, we have distribution as well. So when you launch that podcast, you're not going to launch with zero uh, downloads an episode. You're going to launch launch with five thousand downloads an episode, or look, you're at ten thousand downloads an episode right now. We can boost you and, and double the size of your show. So we've just over the last few years invested more and more in the co- core competencies that it takes to build a podcast, and and you know we're just starting to now explore building franchises, at, you know, on top of each one of those podcast hosts, basically for for those who are open to it. For each of these podcasts, you know, who owns the IP? Is it you guys or is it the individual creator? And then what are typically the economics of these deals? Yeah, good question. We have two different models when it comes to our podcast. So I, I, I think actually some helpful context here. We've never raised any venture money, right? And so unlike a lot of our competitors who are funded by wealthy billionaires or who have, you know, raised tens of millions in venture money, we raised a... <laughs> Uh, a whopping $100,000 uh, kind of friends round, friends and family round the day that we launched our business and have never raised a cent of money after that. And that's been really important for us. And so the podcast business has enabled us to do that. And so I know everything in media is about the IP, but for us, our focus was building a profitable media business, 
right? And so that actually came first for us. And so with our two different podcast businesses, uh, kind of two different podcast strategies, one of them is the sales, kind of the front end sales for these podcasts, right? So for a few of our shows, we don't own the IP. We let them keep the IP and that side of our business just spits off revenue. That revenue then allows us to invest in the IP owned podcasts, right? That we actually build in house and not just invest in more podcasts, but it allows us to invest in other things like building our own distribution, launching our new website, blockworks.co that we launched a few weeks ago. Um, So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. And then how are you thinking about building out franchises from these podcasts? You know, if we use Pomp's podcast, for example, are you thinking about a franchise there or are you thinking about franchises with your wholly owned IP? A little bit of both, right? So let's take like let's take um, somebody like Scott Melker. When we met Scott, uh, he had thirty thousand followers on Twitter. We basically put uh, a production team and a sales team behind him. We the revenue that he generated and that we generated and kind of gave to him through revenue shares. He, you know, started building out different, you know, basically distribution paths. He launched a newsletter. He launched a YouTube channel. He's going to launch a few more things soon, right? And so we share in, you know, whether it's the IP or the revenue, a few different things with some of these other shows. Our big focus this year is building shows in-house, right? Kind of like the Barstool model where we might hire, what you know, I don't know what folks out there think of Barstool's content, right? But say what you will about the content, their business strategy of, launching podcasts in-house, they own 100% of the IP, they'll either launch it with in-house employees or they'll go out and say, look, we want a a media podcast in-house. We're going to launch a media podcast. Hey, Jacob, you're a big media name. Come in-house. We'll give you a salary and give you maybe 10% of the upside on the show. As you're launching these shows that are owned by you, what sort of distribution do you get from the other shows that are not owned by you, but are probably some of the larger ones in the network right now? Yeah. I think I think it's everything, right? With each new person that joins the network, it, it it's a nice little compounding effect, right? So let's look at our launch, for example. Um, we just launched our new website a few different uh, a few weeks ago on January twelfth. We had hundreds of thousands of of impressions and and folks actually viewing our stuff on the launch day because that one tweet that we sent out, that one newsletter that we sent out, that one LinkedIn post that we sent out. Uh, and the coverage and like Fortune and Business Insider that then gets amplified by you know twenty different influential people who you know the 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 one thing that we look at for starting our podcast is is distribution right folks who have hundreds or you know dozen uh, you know fifty thousand followers hundreds of thousands of followers right so then when whenever we do something they'll amplify it and they know that. It's beneficial for them because when they launch something, the rest of the network's going uh, to amplify it. So essentially, we're, we're, what we're trying to create by cr- letting everybody be creators, not just these podcast hosts, but full-time employees, is we're basically building a, a PR firm in-house uh, within, this, within the media company. Business Insider wrote when you guys launched that you were targeting a market that is comprised of more traditional finance readers, such as institutional investors and fund managers, which is a more B2B crowd. In a market like crypto, though, which is inherently consumer first, how do you think about covering the industry from a more business perspective rather than consumer? 
Good question. It's been so it is consumer first and it has been consumer first for the past 11 years, but we're taking a bet that it won't always be consumer first. If you go, one of the biggest problems in the space is that there's just a lack of information, analysis, and insights for the more traditional crowd, right? So, you know, if, if you're looking for the best information in the space, it lives on places like Twitter, it lives on places like YouTube. Uh, I, there's a funny story. Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, when he tried convincing his board of MicroStrategy, this public company, to buy Bitcoin, he sent them eight different YouTube videos. That's just ridiculous, right? Because as this space gets right now, you're seeing folks like Paul Tudor Jones and Ray Dalio, and you know these more institutional players like BlackRock get into Bitcoin and crypto and digital assets. They have no interest in watching a YouTube video, right? What they want is a reputable source of information and insights that actually impacts their business and actually gives them the kind of insights and information that they can use to dictate their investments. And so, yeah, we're making a bet that obviously, you know, this space is for real and that this thing lasts as, you know, the price goes up, more, you know, technology gets adopted more free, more and more, um, more people come into the space, you're spot on that probably 80% of those people, if not 90% of those people will be retail. We capture that market through our podcasts and we let other media companies talk to that audience through their articles and website and newsletter and stuff like that. When it comes to our editorial brand, then our newsletter, our webinars, the content on our site, we're entirely focused on this group that oftentimes gets bucketed as the institutional investor, but really it breaks down into macro traders, hedge fund managers, private equity folks, venture firms, high net worth individuals, pensions, endowments, RIAs, financial advisors, accredited investors. There's this huge swath of folks that's coming into the space and they have no source of information for them. I want to keep talking about the relaunch because, you know, like we talked about before, Blockworks was originally a podcast network and an events business and an advisory business. And now it's a news organization. Can you talk about what your thinking was that went into deciding to launch a news organization? I will say uh, <laughs> it's probably the wrong way to put it. I'll probably get in trouble for this. I wish we didn't. I wish we didn't have to launch a news organization, right? It's it, news is a really tough business. I wish we didn't have to do it. But when you look at the space, uh, and actually, what happened is. You know, COVID happened, right? And we sat down, and like a lot of other companies, we interviewed dozens, if actually over a hundred, of our customers and folks in our audience. And the one theme was: there's no good source of information for investors to learn about digital assets, right? And so, do I wish one of our competitors had done this and launched, you know, better information for investors? Of course, it'd make our lives a whole lot easier. But nobody had done it, and it's a massive, massive opportunity and we couldn't just sit there and, and and not take advantage of it. So yeah, since really March, we've been investing in and building this new site and hiring a team of journalists from places like Bloomberg and, and X Coindesk and X Cheddar and, um, you know, Real Vision and, and financial media outlets like that to to launch this editorial team. So Let's talk about COVID because a few months ago, you put out a really great thread about how Blockworks got through COVID. And I remember March 2020 because I was working at Coindesk at the time 
and we were neck deep in planning for consensus, our biggest event of the year. And then that obviously got pulled. And I know that you guys had an event planned during blockchain week. Walk through how you've had to evolve the business and specifically how you've had to evolve the events business since then. And then looking forward, what are your plans for 2021 now that vaccines are being released? Yeah, good questions. Um, So I'll answer the first part. So March 9th, we canceled. So we started as as an events business, right? And then we layered on the podcast business. And then, you know, now we're kind of a multi-platform financial media company. But on the event side of things, uh, events made up a pretty large portion of our of our business, right? Less than 50%, but still a su- substantial amount. And it was pretty devastating having to cancel our, you know, big May 2019 event. We canceled it on March 9th. And just to kind of get transparent with some numbers here for the audience, our revenue fell 80% month over month. So January was a record month. February was a record month. And then uh, March, our revenue fell 80%. And, you know, we were, we, we did what a lot of other companies (laughs) did, which was, again, we just sat down with our customers and that's when we figured out that a lot of them were stopped, you know, they were just basically stopping spending any money on marketing, um, from a brand awareness point of view, but they were going to continue to spend on lead generation and customer acquisition and much lower on the funnel. So we worked with them, kind of did our first kind of branded content and, and webinars. Uh, and, and that's how these new products came to be. And that was kind of the genesis as well of, of this new editorial site. So that uh, hopefully that answers the first part. In terms of the second part, our event strategy has, I think, been very different than a lot of folks. I strongly don't believe that you can just replicate an in-person event and turn it into a virtual conference. Um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing lead generation play, right? So if you look at what you guys did at CoinDesk, and I know you're no longer there, but with Consensus, I'm not sure how many how many new leads you generated for your database, but it had to be twenty thousand new subscribers or fifteen thousand new subscribers, right? It's a massive amount. But when you look at the value that it provides to both the audience and the sponsors. I just can't make the argument that it, it it's nearly as valuable as those in-person events. So actually, unlike most companies, we've just we've just backed off. We haven't even played in the virtual conference space. We do we do webinars, right? Because we think those add a lot of value to both the sponsors and the audience. But what you know, when something doesn't add value to both of our the audience and the, and the clients, we we just don't we don't do it. So we we actually don't host any virtual conferences. Uh, but we do plan on hosting in person again later this year, actually. So we have, we have two events planned for later this year, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, I want to talk about two two parts. First, the webinar business. Uh, can you talk through, you know, the real mechanics behind that business? What are you charging for these? What are you offering to the partners? Because it's it's you know a very tried and true tested product in the B two B space. Yeah, of course, we charge roughly, you know, between like twelve and a half to fifteen thousand dollars a webinar. Each webinar is one hour long. The webinars will drive anywhere from, you know, 150 to 800 registrants. And there's really two types of webinars, right? There's more higher level webinars, I guess you call them. So you're a company like Coinbase, you want to reach, you know, some hedge funds who are looking at the space. We'll do we'll run a webinar focused more on you know what's going to happen with inflation whereas what what about you know how does gold stack up versus bitcoin that's more of a higher level conversation we'll get 
800, 900 registrants for those type of webinars. But then when you look at what actually drives business, not that those don't drive business, but what's what's why webinars are so amazing is if you run a webinar on staking for Ethereum staking, you know, Ethereum 2.0 staking for it, for hedge funds, you're only going to get 100 people, 150 people. I bet 90% of the listeners on here have no idea what staking even entails. And, and that's fine. They shouldn't. But the, the hedge funds that are showing up to listen to that webinar are actively pursuing their staking strategy. And so that's why I think the webinars are so are so powerful. And then when you do come back to doing you know, in-person events later on this year, what is the breakdown of that? Is it primarily sponsor-driven? Is it attendee revenue? Is it both? Is it an expo? Talk to me what you're thinking about. Yeah. So we're going to do kind of hybrid events. We'll, uh, we, we're planning a New York conference later this year, as well as a London conference later this year. Both of them will have hybrid components, but no, they'll, they'll be in-person events. Uh, you know, as I'm sure all the you know, media operators on here know, you know, a lot of uh, event places and venues were, were uh, kind of desperate to get people in there. So we got some pretty good rates. And obviously, if COVID persists, um, you know, that's going to be unfortunate, but we'll just push the event in the case that it's not, you know, if it's 1% not safe, we won't do it, obviously. Um, but yeah, we're, we're pretty bullish on in-person events coming back. I think we events are at their newspaper moment right now. A lot of in-person event companies are going to fail. Um, but there will be some, you know, event companies that can pivot and understand how to take their events to become hybrid events. Thinking about having to put all that money down for an event that could still inevitably get pushed because of COVID, have a, have a venues and have uh, other companies you have to partner with on these events started adding uh, pandemic clauses to their contracts now that we've been hit by something as broad as as COVID, or do the contracts still look relatively the same? Uh, I'd say a little bit of both. The contracts look very much the same, except that <laughs> except that there's that clause in there. Uh, you know, the clause basically just gets. I, I think at this point, everyone's in pretty much in agreement, right? That if you know, say say we have an event in you know November of, of later this year, which we're doing, we're doing a, a November London event. Um, if 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 COVID persists and COVID's still around, then the venue we get to push the event, and the sponsors get to either push the event or move that money into things like webinars, daily newsletter ads, podcast sponsorships, branded content, things like that. We leave it up to them, right? So you started mentioning a couple other products that you offer. Can you go into more detail about the various other revenue streams that Blockworks offers? Because currently, when you go to the website, there is no advertising on it at all. Yeah, we don't run ad- advertising on the website, and we don't plan on doing it anytime soon. The our our main products right now are you know events, which we just talked about, has been on the sideline, but we we have been an events company in the past. Podcast advertising generates a substantial amount of our revenue. Webinars generate both a substantial amount of our revenue, and they generate leads and new you know newsletter subscribers. Um, Branded content, we're building out that. So one of our advisors is Sean Griffey over at Industry Dive. Uh, we're working with Sean uh, to build out our branded content studio and see what that looks like. Um, we launched a daily newsletter about two weeks ago. It's already has five figures of newsletter subscribers on it. So, you know, we've got a bunch of different products, just like I'm sure all the other folks on here do, you know, as well. But 
our big thing that we're working with the sales team on right now is just bundling that up, right? So instead of talking to uh, a marketer and saying, look, come sponsor three different webinars, we're really trying to focus on on running marketing campaigns for these folks, trying to really figure out what their needs are so that if you're the CMO of Fidelity Digital Assets, right, you might have a custody business. Your custody business has very different goals than BitGo's custody business, which has very different goals from Anchorage's custody business. So you just have to figure out those goals and our big focus right now internally is increasing the average deal size, which for us means bundling different products together so that we can help the our brands and the marketers that we work with actually run more cohesive marketing campaigns. Since you mentioned Sean, he is obviously one of the biggest uh, proponents of media companies starting to collect first-party data as soon as humanly possible. How are you thinking about that with regard to the strategy behind your website launch and the various products that you offer? <laughs> Can't mention Sean Griffey without talking about first-party data. <laughs> uh, we are, it's a big focus, right? I mean, you, you, you've written about it a lot, Jacob, you know, and I think you will continue doing it. Media companies need to figure out their first-party data strategy. And there are two different ways that we think about it, right? One is the very obvious way, which is, you know, I saw that you implemented this at Morning Brew, Industry Dive, and Sean has this. A lot of folks on this, you know, who listen to the podcast will have this. When someone signs up for the newsletter, you just have to put in your email. Then, you know, I see on Morning Brew when you sign, you know, then it takes you to a secondary page that says, complete your registration, right? Put in your company, your title, and your industry, right? Sean likes to collect more data than that. That has, crazily enough, a 70 to 80% fill out rate. So that's, you know, for the folks listening here, that's the first step I'd say for first party data is just get that secondary page up to, you know, quote unquote, cl- complete your registration. But the other way is more creative ways to do that. And that's, that's when product comes into play. So you had an amazing episode with uh, the head of product at Bloomberg. And that episode got us thinking about more creative ways that we could actually capture first party data. For example, and I'm not saying that we're doing this, but just some things that we're kind of noodling with some ideas here on the product side is, you know, what if you could log into our site and track your portfolio, your crypto portfolio, right? But to do that, you have to put in first party data. But by putting in your by putting in your portfolio, we could send you things like notifications, or we could track your portfolio for you. Or if you are a big Ethereum holder and you don't really like Bitcoin, we can serve you more articles focused on Ethereum using our new, uh, you know, combination of our you know WordPress and Omita, which is our new customer data platform. Um, and so those, you know, we're just thinking creatively about different ways to capture first-party data. Before we leave the business models, I have a couple more questions. The first is, you know, many financial B2B media companies look at subscriptions as major revenue drivers. You are a 100% marketing business. With the news product launching, do you have any plans on introducing a subscription? We think about it. um, But our biggest focus right now is just distribution, distribution, distribution. And, you know, I think... I understand why folks do subscription, and it, it's obviously all the rage right now. But there, are, there are ways to build media companies without subscriptions. You look at companies like Industry Dive. We were just talking about Sean Griffey. They've built a phenomenal business, tens of millions in revenue, very profitable. No subscription business. You look at Aging Media, right? John Yednak and and, and his brother, another phenomenal B two B media business. No subscriptions. Um, 
you know, all ad revenue. And so we think that the, there's so much room to grow. Uh, you know, we're, we're a fairly small business. We did three and a half million in revenue last year. We'll, we'll more than double it this year. We think we, that we can continue more than doubling that, that ad revenue year after year, just on the back of ad revenue for quite a while. And at some point, of course, we'll, you know, we'll think about subscription revenue, but it, it's a completely different ballgame. You mentioned a three and a half million in revenue and the fact that you plan to double that year after year. When you think about that three and a half million in revenue, is that after your revenue shares with the podcast network? And to build on that, is Blockworks currently profitable? Yeah, Blockworks. Yeah, good questions. Blockworks has been profitable since three months into the business. I want to say, um, you know, it's been a. I, I my one of my first jobs. Actually, my first job out of school was working in the venture space, and the main thing working in venture taught me was. <laughs> Don't don't go raise venture as a media company. I think if uh, we were a you know software company, I'm not against raising venture, but I'm very against media companies raising venture. I think it's actually a horrible idea. So yeah, long winded way of saying yeah, we've been profitable. None of this building of a media company is possible without the right people. Can you walk through the team composition and then after talking about that, kind of break down the percentage of business to editorial? Yeah, of course. Good question. So we have 14 people right now. We just doubled the size of the company. So we were eight people, eight people going into December. We've doubled the size of the company. We have about 14, not about, we have 14 people right now, uh, and we'll double the size of the company again this year. Um, we have, uh, out of 14 folks, we have four people on, we have four sales, we have three full-time salespeople. Uh, and they report up to our COO, Julie Miroff. Um, we have a, a five-person editorial team, including our co-founder, Mike, uh, a senior editor, and three journalists. We have two podcast producers, podcast and, and video, audio and video producers. Um, and then a few folks on the kind of operation side as well. You know, marketing manager, content coordin- coordinator to help run the campaigns. Um, but yeah, pretty lean team. All right, so looking forward... Where do you see Blockworks over the next three years? We we have, we have one goal, which is to build the best source of information and insights for investors in digital assets. You know, for if anyone, uh, if I sit sit down with anyone, they'll see I'm pretty bullish on the space. And so, you know, I think that there's going to be hundreds of thousands of of new entrants, if not millions of new entrants, from the more institutional side of things into this space. Right now, they don't have a good source of information. There are, there are truly no media companies serving them. And so we just want to be the best source of information and insights for that crowd. Um, when you look at how we build our business, it's we think about two things. How can, how can we help the audience more and how can we help our brands more? On the audience side of things, I think we'll you know continue building the editorial team. I think we'll continue building the product team to, to serve this editorial team. Um, you know, We'll look at things like data data plays, right? And data products and how data integrates into the crypto space when it comes to, you know, an institutional investor lens. Uh, and then on the brand side, it's it's working to build a content studio and and just actually help them, you know, the brands with more and more things that they want. So I want to keep talking about this a little bit because obviously I spent four years of my career in crypto media <clears throat> and it is obviously an incredibly volatile asset class to try and cover. And the people are nothing if not volatile themselves. 
taking COVID out of it, because this was truly an unexpected situation, how do you handle the ebbs and flows of the market and ensuring you're not caught flat-footed if the market collapses out from under us? Uh, there are some more exciting answers I could say, but the the real answer is just cash flow, right? We have more money in the bank than we've ever had before. Um, we have a pretty nice business model when it comes to cash flow because a lot of our costs are variable, right? We don't have a lot of fixed costs. Um, you look at our podcast business, a lot of our podcasts are not built in-house, which make, makes the the cost variable and you can bring the cost down to zero instantly. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're spot on. I think that crypto ebbs and flows in these four-year cycles, three to four-year cycles. The good news is I think we're entering into a, a pretty bullish cycle here. Um, but yeah, look, I, I, the boring answer for the media operators out there is it's all about cash flow. All right. I want to finish the show now asking you the same two questions I ask every guest that comes on. First, looking at your career, what is a mistake that you have made and what did you learn from it that made you better professionally? Mm, I think the mistake I think the mistake that I have made and continue to make, I'd say, is and one thing that I'm working on is just hiring executive talent is one of the best things that you can do. We the we hired this woman, Julie Miroff, originally as a VP of events away from my old company, this company called SciSense, which was a data analytics firm. She joined as an events person. She then took over operations. She then took over customer support and client engagement with the campaigns. And now she's our COO and runs sales. And she has been phenomenally helpful. And so our big focus this year, one thing that I've mistakenly not done enough of in the past is just hire top kind of executive talent to take things off of my plate and off of Mike's plate. And so that's a big focus of ours later this year. And then if you could offer current or prospective media operators some advice to succeed in media, especially because this was your very first attempt in the media business, what would that advice be? <laughs> cold call. Uh, no, I would, I would say cold call and cold email people as much as possible. But no, I, the, the real advice is don't chase shiny things. Um, I think being an, an entrepreneur and, and launching a company in any space, there are always shiny things, but specifically within media I mean, just within marketing a media company, there's SEO, there's paid social, paid search, PR, social, there's old platforms on social, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, there's new platforms, Snapchat, TikTok, there's referral marketing, right? Your referral program, there's buying ads and other newsletters. That's just within marketing, right? And so I think there, there's, you, you were talking about a subscription product. Is a subscription product a good idea? Of course it is. It's a great idea. You get recurring revenue, but that's a shiny thing for us right now. At some point, it'll probably make sense. But my biggest feedback or advice would just be, and not that this is anything special, is just don't chase shiny things. Find the one or maybe two things that you're great at that you can build everything off of those and then just do that. If you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and give it a five-star rating with your thoughts. If you want even more, Sign up for the newsletter at amediaoperator.com. Each Tuesday, I analyze the latest media news. 
And on Fridays, I do deep dives into specific strategic and tactical topics about building media businesses. Thanks for listening and see you next week.